From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What the Job. I'm Matt Ray. The frontier of science is that you're always feeling as if you have no idea if it's going to work or not. That's probably a good place to be with science, is like the hypothesis is that it should work, but if it doesn't, that will be a pretty informative, hopefully an informative experiment. We've got a fun and fascinating episode for you this week. My guest is AI programmer and improv actor Corey Mathewson. A self-admitted polymath, Corey talks about how he looks at his career through many different lenses. We go deep into the world of what it means to be a deep mind AI scientist. We talk about how good art and good science overlap. And of course, how AI and improv can come together for hilarious results. What the Job is made possible with the support of our affinity partner, TD Insurance. Did you know that through the TD Insurance Mellish Monix program, University of Alberta alumni are entitled to preferred rates on car, home, condo, and renter's insurance? Save even more by bundling your car and home insurance. To learn more about how you can save, please visit tdinsurance.com slash ualbertaalumni. So what's your name and what's your job? So I'm Corey Mathewson. I'm a research scientist with uh, DeepMind, and I'm in Montreal, Canada right now. And for people who don't know what DeepMind is, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. So DeepMind is a bet that is that it's it's part of Alphabet, which is uh, an organization that um, is the parent organization of Google. And so Google is like a sister organization to DeepMind, and DeepMind is like a research-focused um, organization that is, you know, trying to solve artificial general intelligence. That's uh, the the goal and vision of DeepMind. And as a research scientist for that, what what do you do? What's your job entail? Yeah, so like practically day to day. Sure. Yeah. I'm, give me the give me yeah. the day in the life. Yeah, I'm I'm. It's a it's it's much like a, an academic's uh, day in the life. So there's a lot of research. What is research? It's like reading papers and watching talks and synthesizing ideas. What does synthesizing ideas mean? It's like you're writing sort of position pieces or thought pieces or designing experiments that you might then run on computers, like writing you know programs that then you run and then. It, Look at the results. Yeah. And that, I'm, because I think <laughs> AI is something that people find a little bit, uh, I think different people have different ideas of what it is and what it could be. And I think some for some people, it's like AI is like data from Star Trek. Um, so I don't, is it possible for you to give us a little bit of a sense of what AI can be and what it is? I know that's yeah, a big sure. question. <laughs> No, I, I love that kind of question. That's the kind of question that I sort of deal with day to day. So that's like perfect. So artificial intelligence, what does it mean? Intelligence itself is something that, you know, we've been trying to understand about ourselves for a, a long time, we as humans. And artificial means that we can like make it and program it on a computer. Um, and like data from Star Trek is a really good model, actually. So data is like, uh, it's a computer that someone has written that can do intelligent things at, an, at, at the right time. It can do the right thing at the right time. That's a good measure of intelligence. And it also can be programmed and like learn online and adapt online to like changing and dynamic environments. That's like a good measure of intelligence as well. So we're trying to build 
systems, like computational systems. And those can look like robots. Like I have some robots around me that you can then like interact with. Uh, but it could also be processes, like we want to optimize how the power is flowing on a grid, or maybe optimize a, a certain numerical system. Uh, that's also a, a form of artificial intelligence. Yeah. So I prefer the like uh, robot-y, conversational dialogue system-y, uh, combine those two things, and then you get like a data sort of like entity, and then you can you know put them on your spaceship and solve space crime? No, what are they actually doing in Star Trek? That's a good question. In the holodeck, I believe Data did solve space crime because he wasn't he Sherlock is. Holmes. Oh, man, people yes, are going to write yeah. me letters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am curious. You have a pretty uh, long background in AI from what I understand. Uh, can you just tell me a little bit about your background and why you became so uh, passionate and interested in this field? Yeah, absolutely. So I... You know, research scientist now, but let's zoom all the way back. So I came into the University of Alberta in 2005, and my real interest was in the interface between humans and machines. And the way that that was presented to me was through electrical engineering. That is like building engineering systems. Engineering is like applied science. That means we're doing science that is then applied into the real world and people interact with it. And... It's like you're building circuit boards and, you know, electronic systems. And I was focused on the interface between the human and the machine. So I was dealing with like, um, you know, sensors that read things about the human body, like the human brain or muscles or, or that sort of thing. Uh, went through, did an electrical engineering degree and then did a biomedical engineering master's. And then I sort of got the sense that people would say things like, oh, you know, that's a hard problem and we're going to save that for the computer scientists. They're figuring out a way to do that with AI was my first introduction with AI. So I was like tracing out veins on an MRI scan uh, as part of my master's. And it's like, this is a hard repeatable problem and there's probably a computer software that can do this. And someone said, yeah, and there's, there's people at this university that are doing exactly that kind of thing. And that's machine learning. That's what artificial intelligence is. So that was my first introduction to it. That was probably around 2012. And then I did my PhD in computer science and, and specifically in reinforcement learning. And this, like, notion, this, this thing that I call interactive machine learning, which is like building computer systems that we as humans interact with. That's interesting. And uh, it's curious that your how your education sort of uh, went from problem to problem to problem, right? Trying to solve it in different ways until you got to <laughs> to the to where you are now. Sure. Uh, I, I like to think about it like it went from solution to solution. Yes. To solution. <laughs> That's the better. I mean, obviously. <laughs> no, it's, it's true, though. Like, this is what the frontier of science, that's what my brother says. The frontier of science is that you're always feeling as if you have no idea if it's going to work or not. That's probably a good place to be with science is like the hypothesis is that it should work. But if it doesn't, that will be a pretty informative, hopefully an informative experiment. Uh, and I know also in your background that you have like an improv background too, and you've combined AI and improv. I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I've been doing improv for longer than I've been doing artificial intelligence. Um, I've been doing improv for like 15 years now, as of today, whenever this this podcast is being listened to by humans or cyborgs in the future. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, 
I I got into that when I was in high school. I was introduced by a great friend who said, this is the kind of thing that is like really fun, enjoyable for your subconscious to do. Get on stage and play. And it's like theater. It's like doing theater, but with no script and no preconceived notions of what the shows are going to be. You get suggestions from the audience and then you just do shows. And I loved it, loved every minute of it. And uh, yeah, I have been doing improv ever since. Kind of traveled around the world, produced, directed, uh, started, wrote some written shows, wrote formats. And then uh, in my PhD, I was working to like combine the two. So trying to like bring the AI onto the stage, but then also bring this kind of creative ideation format into the science. So like trying to merge the two in a way that is complementary. Um, so what I like to say is that the theatrical stage is the best testing ground for artificial intelligence. Why do you say that? Uh, be yeah, because one, you get people that are very good at adaptation and people that are very good at making the other person look good. And so that other person doesn't have to be a person. It could be a dog or a rock or an AI. And so you have these like really courteous kind of generous performers that will perform with an AI robot and make it look really good. And the audience enjoys it because they see this kind of like challenge and uplifting that is that is happening live in front of their eyes. I, I always hate it when people ask me for specific examples, so I'm very sorry yeah. to do this to you, but I'm, what's a really funny joke that AI has made? Uh, yeah, th th that's a good question. <laughs> um, th there was one moment at the Edinburgh Fringe where we're, we're uh, my comedy collaborator and longtime research associate, Piotr Murowski, and I are doing a show, and on stage is a robot, and it's about the 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 kingdom is sort of in turmoil because we don't know who's going to get the rightful heir to the throne and the 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 dialogue system responds to one of us it has this nice long pause and then it says the son of the king is the son the son and both of us kind of like look at each other it's like that doesn't really make sense and then it says it again like louder somehow and the audience is just like oh oh geez and then you know, Piotr and I both start like praying to this this all-knowing thing that has now made a royal decree that uh, you know the son of the king is the son, the son, and <laughs> it's the Almighty. So yeah, that it, it's contextual. It's not a wonderful like one-off joke, but it is. Uh, it's the moment that matters more than the the, the joke itself. Yeah. I feel like I'm getting off topic, but it's kind of, it, I think it'd be, it's also funny because you say contextual and I think that's exactly part of it. Like you're seeing a robot do it. The audience, I assume the audience knows <laughs> that it's AI, right? And that, that how you play off that is all part of the gag as well. And it- A hundred percent. Yeah. What I like, what I love about this too is it's, you know, I don't think it's true, but often we see this barrier between things like arts and science and engineering and things like that. And this really brings it together in a way that makes it clear that they do overlap. I think that the best science is artistic and the best art is precise and scientific. Like if you look at any of the great works of art, they're, they're also marvels of science that their new techniques in paint or sculpture, their, you know, a new perspective that, that kind of changed the aesthetic. So I, I, I do strongly believe that they not only fit hand in hand, but they uplift, they, they sort of, you know, complement and push up each other. I agree. 
Um, just to try to get back on topic, I, I guess I should. Sure, be, sorry. Yeah, well, it's my, I'm supposed to be running this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to talk about AI for a little bit, you know, AI I think is a fascinating topic and people are going to want to um, get involved with it, but, but it's also something we think a lot about because it feels like AI is going to shape our future in a lot of different ways. You know, self-driving cars, for example, I know I wonder... Will my child ever learn to drive a car? I don't know. I wonder what you think, as someone who works in the field of AI, what are some of the ways that you think AI could uh, could change the future? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I I like your prescient example. Like, will will a child of this generation need to learn how to drive a car? Or will a child of this generation need to learn a second language? Or will a person, you know, child of this generation need to know how to do mathematics might be a question that was asked a few years ago. And if we have computers, then why would we ever need to actually learn how to do math? But there's fundamental skills that we still like to teach and still like to learn. And there's a bit of a curriculum that allows us to have, you know, a scaffolding of intelligence. Um, I see the ways that AI already kind of changes our day-to-day -day life. I say that I've learned a different accent and it's how I talk to my Google Home. So I speak differently to my Google Home or Siri than I do to other humans, because of course you have to speak in a much more clear and concise way. And it's mostly about setting a timer for 12 minutes. Um, and that that is already kind of shaping our behavior. But I think that there's other ways that AI is shaping our behavior. Some of them are great. Some of them are a little more, you know, we're, we're still struggling with them maybe. And, and that's like how we connect with each other as humans. So because we get to be more connected than ever, we can also feel more distant than ever. That is, I know that I can share information online and people that are important to me will see it and will get a chance to whatever, consume it or interact with it. But that means that I'm not actively sort of pursuing that connection. It's somewhat passive and then built around these prediction systems that are recommending it to my dad. So he sees a picture of me going on a walk or something. So I think the way that we act, interact with other people is going to change too. And that's a due in large part to the internet and the sort of prediction machines that are running social networks. It's curious too, because I feel like, you know, we're already there in a lot of ways. If you think about how social media has impacted the way that we receive information, I mean, um, I for a different podcast, Chloe and I did, we interviewed Timothy Caulfield to talk about misinformation and, uh, and COVID. And you can see how social media drives that in a lot of different ways. And you can see how I think just being online drives that in a lot of different ways. So uh, it makes a lot of sense to me that as we go forward, our behaviors, maybe in ways that we don't recognize them first, at first, will be shaped and altered by AI. Yeah, yes, I I think so. So like, you know, like any tool, there will be ways that people figure out how to use it to benefit themselves and to benefit others. And there will be other people that use these tools to exploit certain behaviors. And we have to be conscious about that, that these tools can be used in different ways and also pretty like aware of the expectations of what these tools can actually do. That's been a big part of the kind of AI art that we're doing, which is like setting an expectation. You know, AI can feel scary. This is where it's at right now. And then we put a dialogue system 
on stage that says some gibberishy type thing. And it's like, yeah, that's about where language understanding is is at. And you get to actually see it and interact with, you know, it in a way that reflects its current capabilities and and also lack of capabilities. Yeah, I was I was going to start talking about the Terminator, but I don't think I will because I was like, you know, they send a good Terminator back and they send a bad Terminator. <laughs> different people have different intentions with how this works. I'm curious, just, mm-hmm. to, just to get back to career journey, can you tell me about, uh, I'm just thinking about people who are like, I'd like to work in AI. What are some of the pathways to um, doing that job? Is it about a specific degree that you have to get? Or is it about you can come in at different angles? If someone was like, I want to work in the field of AI, do you have any just basic advice that they could follow? Yeah, that's that's a good question and one that I get maybe once a month or so. Uh, I, I love answering it because it's, I think, more accessible than a lot of other uh, domains or, or like intellectual pathways because uh, computer science and machine learning in a large way is built around this notion of like open source, which is a concept in computer science that like, I'm going to write code, but I'm going to release it to the world so that other people can like take it and remix it and turn it into something that is valuable to them. Because there's a lot of open source and a community that sort of supports each other, there's a lot of ways to interact online with great content, like great online content to ramp up and learn how to start doing AI. Um, there's, I don't know, yeah, can I promo? I don't know, there's there's really good resources on Coursera uh, from the University of Alberta and other institutions that like, you know, are are really top notch, like they are the, the, the best kind of content that you can find online. Uh, DeepMind has a great list of resources that have been compiled for like jumping in and I can send some links, maybe we could put them in the thing. I yeah, don't know sure. if that's a thing that works. Um, to like, you know, what is the first step I can take? And, you know, a lot of it starts with coding. Like if if you want to learn AI, there's a lot of coding to it. But if you're coming at it from an artistic point of view or a creative point of view, like you're someone who makes music, there's systems that you can interact with that don't require coding. And that's kind of exciting too. So you could say, I've got all this domain expertise in I, I don't know, um, you know, dom- domain X, Y, Z, and there's AI tools that you can start to like use to interact with or start to understand your data. So it's not all coding is what I'll say. But, you know, if you want to get into the nitty gritty of AI, there's a lot of open source code that you can start digging into. I like how vast this field is and how uh, accessible it can be from different viewpoints and how it seems like it kind of requires all these different viewpoints. Like I love how you framed it in the different kind of expertise. And I know we talked a little bit about it, but I do want to follow up because I'm curious how improv makes you better at doing your job as a, as a scientist in AI. Yeah. So the, 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 the connection in my head is that improv is an artistic pursuit built on failure. So improv is like you have no idea what the script is, so you're not going to get it right. Once you appreciate this idea that it's always going to be barely working then the and the audience is going to love that watching you sort of dance and jump through these fiery hoops of danger then then you appreciate that improv is all about like learning through failure and trying things and then seeing what works and adapting and ai is built on similar notions that is like reinforcement learning is all about trial and error 
and trying things out and then seeing what works and getting feedback and then adapting live and on the fly. And so that's one, that's sort of like a nice, you know, allegorical connection. But I think there's also like mindset connections, which is divergent thinking, constructive, creative um, approaches, and like an awareness that in the arts, you're thinking about subjective assessment. That is, you're thinking about how someone's going to perceive this. So you're thinking about stakeholders. Almost inherently, you're thinking about the stakeholders that are going to be affected or engaged with your work. And I think the same should be reinforced in scientists. That is, think about what you're doing and who's going to interact with it. And if it's nobody, then that's you're probably just sort of spinning the wheels of science. And if it's somebody, then great. Then what do they expect from your scientific approach? And how are they going to use it? And and what is your responsibility to that kind of person? You seem like someone who has, and maybe I'm wrong, you can just be like, no. Uh, but <laughs> you seem like someone who has a lot of a lot of interests that are all over the place. And I'm curious how you contain them. You know, a lot of people, when they go down a career path, they're like, this is my path. This is my focus. I'm going to stay in this lane and climb the ladder mm -hmm. and get mm -hmm. to the top. How do you compartmentalize or structure or decide the different things that you're going to spend your time on? Uh, yeah, that's that's a good question. So I, 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 I'm so enamored by this notion of a polymath that you can like gain a lot uh, by appreciating different perspectives. So we all look at the world through lenses. And if you have more lenses, then you can see the world in a, in a bunch of different ways. So I've tried to collect a lot of lenses and so that I can look at a problem and then look at it through all these lenses. Okay, what does it look like as an art project or a science project? Um, and I, I, I have something called the decision triangle, which is usually what I use to make decisions. And it's a triangle and it's fun and money and learning, fun, money, learning. And so if I'm making a decision about what I'm going to spend my time on, it's got to fill at least probably two out of the three of those. And that's like, in all humility, that's how I honestly make decisions. Yeah, well, it's better than like a magic eight ball. Whenever I think of a triangle that makes decisions, that's, uh, that's where my <laughs> mind goes. Which, uh, hey, that's that's not AI, but it gets the job done sometimes. Yeah, ask me later. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm also just curious about, you know, we talk a lot about the future and AI. Um, how how does this industry, we talked about how oh, the dark side, and obviously when you get into fiction about AI, a lot of it is like dystopian because we love to think the worst. But how does the industry feel about that? I mean, certainly you guys are probably excited and you're driving innovation towards new heights and things that are useful for people. But is there also a consideration within the industry that we need to be a little careful or, or we need to be directed towards what we're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, the the creative in me loves the divergent thoughts of sci-fi. And like, there's a new book that I was just reading the other day called Machinehood, which is like a brilliant look at what it means for a future, uh, what it means to humans in a future when robots will have rights. What, is, what does robot rights mean? And that's like a wonderful perspective that like, you know, scientists have struggled with and philosophers have struggled with. And, and now it gets explored in this beautiful, like, art book creation. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that there's any notion of, like, 
oh, like stop the creatives. Don't let them get into any territory. It's like, that's beautiful. And the, it's oftentimes a reference point. So people will say like, you know, in her, when, when this happens and then there's a moment of realization that this digital assistant has been interacting with multiple people, that's a, a you know, a moment of perspective. So they're good reference points for us culturally. They're, they're, they're artifacts that we can look at and appreciate. Um, but I, you know, that's the creative fiction sort of what is possible in the world. And it's, you know, there's a tradition of it, you know, the, talking about AI and what the possibilities of our AI are almost went hand in hand with the development of AI itself. On the other side is this like social responsibility, which is we should be thinking about the tools we build and who's going to use them and how they're going to use them in a way that, um, you know, attempts to at least predict what are some failure modes of these tools and mitigate those kind of failure modes. And that social responsibility is something that I believe very strongly in. And I think it comes from my engineering background that like engineer, you wear an iron ring and the iron ring is all about symbolizing that like failure is costly and it costs human lives and that's dangerous and you are responsible to the humans that you're interacting with. So bringing that into the computer science is like, you're writing programs, these are programs that people are gonna interact with. It might not be as obvious and physical as a, as a bridge that collapses, but it's it's real and, and dangerous. And so we need to be thinking about how to mitigate those dangers. Um, and so I think that there's growing trends in industry to focus on you know AI for social good, responsible AI, um, beneficial machine learning, and ways that we can use these tools to address specific, you know, serious, big problems that we as a society are facing. It is a fascinating field. And I wonder, you know, the last person we interviewed, I think, who worked in tech is also the last person to describe themselves as a polymath. Is that a uh, common trait? Are there lots of people in your field who just have uh, lots of uh, hobbies and interests that uh, over diverse ranges? I think so. And I think it's because like programming is hyper specific and to be an adept programmer, I think that you also need to not program sometimes, but you need to do something that is like other. So there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I also play piano and I, you know, do this and I've been doing that for 20 years or, oh, and I also paint or um, I also write fiction or I also bake or uh, like, I, I think that there's commonly complementary interests because you have to program and then also be able to disconnect from making those programs and like be in the real world, make a thing that, you know, actually exists. I mean, that, that it makes so much sense to me. And the more now I feel like I'm just an AI expert, I know everything about it. So like the more, good, good, <laughs> the good. more I learn about it, uh, the more, the more I appreciate that it seems like it does take those um, different kind of perspectives to help make it. So if, again, I'm trying to go back to like career advice and for people who are thinking about trying yeah. to get into this field, is it recommended that they, you know, try to bring their hobbies to their work? Um, or is it just a matter of, you know, focus on the basics of first and, uh, get to where you're, you're competent enough that you can combine those lenses as you call them? Yeah, I, I, I'm a strong believer that like everyone has something pretty interesting to bring even if it's just your opinion on a certain topic. And like, so you should for sure, you know, whatever it is that's your thing that you're passionate about, 
what's the what's the data problem in that space is one way to start looking at it you know i i've got a brother who builds web tech so then he's thinking about how does machine learning connect with web tech like websites like you know online payment systems and registries and it's like you don't really want fuzzy logic in that but maybe there's certain angles that you can like connect with um and yeah so i'd say sure there's basics it's it's if you're someone who's like actively engaged in your own development i think it's relatively easy to to sort of level up in the ai world and it's much easier if you have a problem of your own that you want to solve so like i have a bunch of pictures maybe of a trip that uh that i went on to japan and i want to know what are like what are the pictures where i'm in it that's really the pictures I want to see. I have 5,000 pictures and I want to know the ones that I'm in. So that's a fun machine learning problem. And then you can like almost skill up through all of machine learning just with that problem, just kind of getting better at how you might do that problem. And you start with one way and then you can do it a little bit better. And then you learn a different technique, you do it a little bit better. And it almost helps to have a, a guiding problem, like a guiding you know, sort of what's your North star that you're going to always be traveling towards because then, then you can sort of, I don't know, how am I going to pill? Okay. What if I wanted a, a, a description on each of those images too? Like I, I didn't want to know just which are the ones of me, but I wanted also to be able to read quickly what is shown in those images. Okay, cool. Now I've covered like lots of different machine learning. Um, it would take a while to implement these sorts of things and I could learn a lot you know, just by searching that kind of stuff online. That makes a lot of sense and being self-directed and uh, having your own personal problems. I think that actually applies to a lot of different career paths, which is uh, pretty good advice in general. I asked you about how improv has influenced your AI, but I haven't, AI work, but I haven't gone the opposite way. And I really should have probably because, you know, my background's all arts, but how uh. have you, as you, you know, you've gone through you know, all your degrees in engineering and, and computer science, et cetera, how have what you've learned doing work in AI, has that influenced your comedy beyond, of course, making AI a, a literal part of your improv? Yeah, um, it's it's uh, I honestly think it's made me funnier. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't expect <laughs> that. Yeah, <laughs> like there's more there's more to mine. There's a lot more characters. I, I, I you know, we talk about in comedy, like mining the joke. And in, in computer science, you talk about data mining and I. I think that I've I've learned you know strategies to pull new funny interesting things out of a given sort of seed doing associations and then like how would a computer associate these sorts of things um I also it it's been a process of I'm going to develop a tech that I think is cool and I think would be valuable and then go give it to a bunch of beta testers. And those beta testers are like a creative community. And these are people that I like love and know and support and trust. And they're going to say, this is great, but you couldn't use it on stage because it's too slow. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Um, look, I made it 10 times faster. Is it fun now? It's like, yeah, but it's a little weird. And if it keeps showing that picture, it's pretty boring. It doesn't make sense. Okay, go build that thing and then come back. And this dialogue between the two um, really you know, makes the art thing that I'm making uh, a process, a collective process. And so it's made me appreciate the value of collective creativity 
much more. I used to think that improv was like a solo thing. And if you were just like, just funny enough, then you could really do it. <laughs> but it's much more of like, no, how you understand the other person that you're working with or the other people that you're working with and the audience, how you perceive them and how you adapt. Um, yeah, not to mention all the tech that I've kind of built that then goes onto the stage. So like, you know, how do you listen to the people on the stage? How do you visualize with where they are, where they're moving? Can you listen to the audience and react? Can the system do, you know, listen to the words that are being said and then translate that into images that are shown on the back of the screen? All these sorts of like tech are possible because of the like science innovation and implementation that I've done. I love how there's such curiosity driven ideas in both of art and and science in this in this case and i'll i'll relate a story about because i'm now just thinking about what i've said i went to a, a concert once in edmonton where one of the performances was a woman playing saxophone and she had some sort of device on her head that read her like brainwaves or something like that and it went into a laptop which then went into an amp and the laptop interpreted however her levels of concentration were and played new music to go associated with what she was playing in the saxophone to make a, a piece, right? So the entire yeah. thing is it's one-time performance. You'll never get the same one again unless she concentrates exactly the same way, <laughs> which you wouldn't because you'd be playing it in different ways. And it's just a fascinating way. So I'm really interested. I mean, and this is my own. People are like, no, get back to AI. But I'm. this is what I'm interested in. How art is probably, as we go with more further with AI and how AI can influence things, and as we let our creative minds access it and make it it can change all kinds of fields of art yes yeah abs absolutely so there's all the like digital art that exists on the computer and those are all of course affected by the different you know software and tools that allow creatives to pull different things in and assemble them but then there's also this like perceptual art that can happen in an interaction space so you know she was able to play this piece with her mind and the saxophone and you could imagine scaling that up that the whole audience is able to play that the whole venue becomes an interactive space and and these are you know these are made possible because machine learning kind of allows you to scale and understand these signals and react in a way that is timely and contextual and I, I love that. I, I just love that. And if it's not timely and contextual enough, well, then that's a machine learning problem. We got to go solve that problem. And if it is, well, then super cool. We get this beautiful art that kind of pops out and we all get to like enjoy it and embrace it. So I think we're going to see more, you know, live theater. I put live theater in quotes because it's like, how live does live theater need to be if, you know, there's certain pieces of the stage that are moving around or, you're interacting with a part of the script that then gets played out later on. This this is all possible now. This all exists. And it pulls you into the piece in a way that wasn't possible before. That's very exciting. Um, I want to spin this a little slightly different way because we're, we're talking about your career path in AI. But let's also talk sure. about people who are like, I want to get into improv. Um, sure. If there's somebody out there who's like, you know what, I have always wanted to make up jokes on the spot and in front of an audience, and I'm not scared of that for some reason. What advice yeah. do you have for them? Yeah, or I've always wanted to do it, and I am really scared of it. How do yeah. I get over that weird, terrifying fear? Um, yeah, I, this is the beauty. This is what I think improv is really good at. I think it's 
It is so approachable. It's so accessible. All you need to do is be there. That's the only preparation you need for improv. It's pretty amazing. It's like nothing else is kind of like that. Um, and there's all kinds of um, online content that you can engage with, right? There's like shows and workshops that can exist online. There's also like almost in every major city, there's an improv theater that is willing to bring you in, teach you a workshop, get you up on your feet, or they'll come to you. So you can you know, call these companies, they'll come into your, your company, your organization, your team, uh, your birthday party, your family birthday party, and they'll do improv with you, engage in a way that is like super fun, super approachable, super safe. Uh, and it, it doesn't take long is what I'll say. It's probably like, you know, ter terrifying uh, for about 15 minutes. And then you feel like you've got it and you're a genius, you know everything. And then you quickly get humbled and you kind of sort of understand how it's all going to work. And then over the, you know, it's a few hours that you can probably like build those edges and build those like skills. So yeah, I, I'd say engage with the local theater that's in your community. There's lots of them. If not, there's great ones online that will do workshops and, 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 sort of get you up and telling jokes and sort of break whatever that mental block is or, you know, support you in being even funnier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people can't see you, but you put it in air quotes. Yeah. So I think even funnier in air quotes. Uh, I think yeah. also I, I put it in air quotes because it's, you know, improv is not always just about being funny. It's also just about reacting and, and, and truthfully reacting in the moment. And, you know, improv can be as, you know, dramatically intense as it is dramatic as comically funny and still be just entertaining. So it seems like, I mean, at least in the exterior perception that if they look at your degrees, it seems like you've been heading in a straight path towards where you are right now, but does it feel that way to you? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good question. Good question. I, I am I, like, honestly, no, Hindsight is twenty twenty, and there's a saying in improv that Im improv is like it's like doing a theater performance, but only looking at the rearview mirror. And so it's like you're driving, but only looking at the rearview mirror. So you think you know where you're going, and everything is still lined up, but you can't actually see where it is that you're headed. So that's that that resonates with me. I I think it's really easy to look back and connect the dots and say like, oh, this led to this, which led to this, which led to this. It's much harder to create a plan. And if I were ever to have created a plan, this is not what it probably would have looked like. It would have been much simpler and like way less complex. There would have been less, you know, moving pieces and, you know, probably I would have done things differently if I had planned it out. But I was open and adapted and took opportunities and transitioned when necessary to sort of like flow with the currents of, of interest, of my own interest, and then also the opportunities that were presented to me. So yeah, I'd say I, I knew I was always interested in the interface between human and machines. I didn't quite know where that was going to be best explored. Uh, it, there's a world where that could have been best explored in nursing. I could have realized that I want to be on the person side and understanding the compassion and empathy of the nurse's, you know, profession. But I, it didn't happen like that. It, it, it happened whatever in this sort of way, just the way that the tides were flowing. And 
I think you can always look back and connect those pieces. So it's, it's, yeah, while it's helpful to have a plan and it's almost easier to, you know, have a box and then fill it full of things. Sometimes you got to do for a few and then see kind of what connects. I think we hear that anyone who, who we've interviewed, who it looks like on the surface that they had some straight line says the same thing that you do that yeah in retrospect if you connect the dots backwards it does look like this was all planned out but it is about taking opportunities that's what we hear also as well be open to those opportunities that are around you take advantage of them because you don't know what's gonna come out of them yeah and and ask for them you know hey i i want to do this how do i do that how do i make that happen you know there's there's only so much that someone can do by sort of looking at you modeling what you might want to do and then coming up with ideas but if it's like how do i get there ask ask and people will be you know totally ready to give advice or at least ideas on how to make that happen or even make connections in a lot of ways and yeah it's like this is this is funny because it's a machine learning problem right if you have a set of dots of points it's always easy to draw a line through them that says, you know, these line, this line connects all these dots, but you don't actually know the line that was generating those dots in the beginning. It's, of course, you can come up with a fit, but it's not necessarily how those points were created. Definitely. That's, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, I think now we're going to, because we've been gone for, going for a while, we're going to do the lightning round. This is the most improv part of the whole thing that has been very improv otherwise. Uh, I love it. So The lightning round. These are just questions off the top of your head. Give me, okay. give me your answer. Uh, so yeah. most of them are yes or no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have you ever been fired? Uh, no, but I quit dramatically from a painting job by just full on leaving. Nice. <laughs> when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, 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 philanthropist. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so you just wanted to be wealthy and give money to yeah, things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you started university, what did you want to be? Uh, an electrical engineer. What is something that you wish people understood about your job? Oh, that's a good question. That it is much more human than you think. <laughs> what advice do you have for someone who feels like they're in a career rut? Um, listen to the advice you give other people as if you were giving it to yourself. Like be kind to yourself. It's really hard to do, but you have to do, you're probably really good at giving advice. And if you feel like you're in a rut, you know. So just whatever advice you're giving someone, feel like you can give that kind of advice to yourself and listen to it. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't in this job? Uh, canoeing. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I think I would just be hard canoeing often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite thing about your job? The freedom to explore. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself just after you graduated, what advice would you give yourself? Just after I graduated? Yeah, right at, I mean, I don't know which time. You pick a time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Let's uh, say you're uh, undergrad, if that makes it easier. Yeah, the, the, the answer is um, keep doing what you like. Don't, 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 don't change for somebody else. Keep doing what you like. In respect to your education, 
uh, or your career path, is there anything that you look back on and think, oh, I wish I had done? Um, <laughs> that's, that's a loaded question. I mean, yes, absolutely. Uh, what are they? No, I don't think, I don't think you can live. I can't live with regret for very long. So I'm sure I felt that, but not, not for very long. I wish I did better on the SAT, but it didn't really matter in the end. Didn't even need it to go to the U of A. So what, why do I regret that? I don't know. Didn't really study. <laughs> why does it loom? Why does it loom over me? Never was a thing even. Well, yeah. you got to make a machine that will tell you why it'll yeah. solve that problem for you. Data as a psychiatrist yeah. will crack the code. There you go. The first uh, chatbot ever made was uh, modeled after a psychiatrist. Corey, this has been a lot of fun. I've had a blast talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Matt. Uh, it's been absolutely delightful to reflect back on my choices, uh, past, present, and future. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the Job, and thanks to our guest, Corey Mathewson, for talking about his career journey. And as always, a reminder that the best place for alumni to connect with other alumni about jobs, mentorship, or volunteer opportunities is the online platform Switchboard. It's free, and you can try it out today at uab.ca slash sboard. It's a great tool no matter where you are in your career journey. That's it for this episode. For What the Job, I'm Matt Ray. See you next time.